following sermon is by Hunter Hayes, Assistant Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Hunter. A PhD director of healthcare innovation recently stated that we may be facing a second pandemic. Dr. Vail Wright, a member of the American Psychological Association, said, if current research holds, we've got a mental health pandemic on our hands. According to Ms. Wright, part of the reason could be the focus on the current pandemic. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, at least 40 million adults in the U.S. age 18 and older, or 18.1% of the population, are affected by anxiety disorders every year. I suspect that number is probably even larger, given what's happened in the last year or so. How do you cope with the stress? This week, the governor of my home state of California was up for a recall vote after more than 1.6 million Californians signed a petition to oust him from office. Many people were embittered against the politician for his handling of the COVID pandemic and enforcing some of the most strict lockdown measures in the country. Just listen to one of California, one California's lobby, sorry, one California lobby group's assessment of the situation relating the stress of current events to their recommendation on how to vote in this election. This is a quote. Our military withdrew first in Afghanistan, leaving countless Americans still in country as hostages. Homelessness is on the rise, rampant in California. COVID vaccines do not provide lasting immunity similar to polio, mumps, and other vaccines. Blood tests on those vaccinated are revealing zero antibodies after two to six months. The stress meter is off the charts. And in light of this, the California chapter of NORML, the only state organization devoted specifically to marijuana reform for consumers, wants you to vote no on the Newsom recall because the candidate that replaces Newsom is not favorable to cannabis. You heard that right. The writer of this article wanted people to vote no on recalling the governor because on the one hand, stress is at an all-time high particularly in California, and because voting yes could threaten the use of medical cannabis as a solution for all the anxiety in California. The title of that article that I just read from is Anxiety Crisis in America. And according to the author, the requests to medical professionals for treatment of anxiety and insomnia are skyrocketing. Her recommendation, and this is also a quote, start by finding the local cannabis Dispensary. I mean, I, I don't know if anything better expresses the weirdness of our cultural moment than people arguing for medical cannabis as the main solution for dealing with society's problems. Lots of people are stressed right now. Lots of people are afraid. The world seems up di- upside down in so many ways. Americans' trust in government is hitting all-time lows. How do you cope with the stress? Are you finding yourself more anxious now than you've been in the past? Or do you have peace? 
No matter how you think about our problems and what the best solution may be, do you have the peace that God is in control? Today, I want to call us to evaluate our hearts and see if there is any anxiousness that distresses us and hopefully set our hearts in firm reliance on God and his word. Now think about something for a second. How would you describe lack of anxiety in poetic form? Paul in, in Philippians 4, 7 says that we should let the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Those are lofty words, certainly. The psalmist David says it in just five Hebrew words, translated something like this, surely in God there is silence for my soul. That's peace. That's what it means to not be anxious, to be quiet in your inmost being, to have a quiet soul. So how do you quiet your soul? Most of us, I think, can imagine how we might go about doing this when the world all around us is working as it should be, but what about when the world is raging around you? What about when your life is threatened, your faith is shaken, and the world as you know it is changing faster than ever? How can someone facing this kind of pressure experience a calm and quiet soul? Well, that's exactly what David, the author of Psalm 62, is going to show us how to do. And I invite you to turn there if you've not already. Our text for this morning is Psalm 62. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about this psalm. The setting cannot be known precisely because there's not enough given in the description. However, I'm sure we could narrow it down to sometime in the life of David, and particularly a time when he faced adverse circumstances, circumstances that would make him describe himself as a wall that is leaning over. That's what he says in verse 3. The imagery that he, that he gives here makes me imagine a fortress that's being assailed by the enemy, and the inhabitants inside wonder how long the wall will hold. Each thrust of the enemy's attack is a little nearer to collapsing the wall and destroying the defenses. And here, David, pressed against his wit's end, it seems it's only a matter of time before the enemy breaks through. Or is it? From a human perspective, when situations in life appear to be all doom, this is when we need to understand and realize and reaffirm that our God is a rock. So I want us to glean several insights from this psalm that will help us when we face difficult days. David's song of confidence reveals how he thought about life when he faced the potential end of his kingdom, his glory, and perhaps even his life. And I think we can learn from this. I think we can apply the principles from this psalm to encourage our hearts with firm confidence in God's faithful character and his deliverance. Let us read this psalm together, Psalm 62. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. 
they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. And as we seek to learn from David this morning and his thoughts when he faced adverse circumstances and trouble in life, I want to give us four ways that we can learn to have peace in these moments. I'm going to give you four points, okay? The first one is recognize your only hope is in God. Recognize your only hope is in God. David begins this psalm, For God alone my soul waits in silence. There are several different ways that this is translated in in the major English translations. But the, the very beginning word could be translated either only or surely. It could be a restrictive, as in there's no, no one else to trust, or it could be more assertative, as in surely my soul should wait for God. And that's, I, I believe, based on the Hebrew construction, that it is best translated as surely my soul waits in silence for God, because David is declaring his confidence in the midst of trouble, in the midst of facing adverse circumstances. David often expresses his confidence in God's protection, calling him my rock. That's what we see, the metaphor used throughout this psalm. This is common, a, a common refrain for David. If uh, we, we read earlier in the worship service from 2 Samuel 22, uh, David says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. We see this throughout the Psalms. Uh, Also in 2 Samuel 23, verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. We see this in Psalm 18.3. Psalm 18.3 says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And actually, it should be 18 verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So this is a very common metaphor for David. And this speaks to who he sees God as. God is a, a strong rock and a protection in his life. And if you study the life of David, you know that there are moments in his life where he's on top of the world. Like when he wrote Psalm 18, he had just been delivered from the hands of Saul, his enemy. And then there are moments where David is very low. There are times when his life is definitely at the high, and there's times when it's in the valley, right? There's a lot of shifting going on in his life, but he has something stable in his life that keeps him grounded and secure, and that is that God is his rock, 
an immovable rock and fortress. And that's something that we need to remember, is that God is a rock for those who put their trust in him. He is a source of stability in our life. The statement here in verse 1, that where it says, for God alone my soul waits in silence, that is a sort of an indicative statement. It is a statement that expresses a simple truth. Often I think a simple reminder that God is our hope soothes our heart when we're facing trouble. God is a rock to those who put their trust in him. Now contrast that. Contrast this this idea of stability and firmness that comes from resting in God and quieting your soul in God. Contrast that with how the wicked are described. In Psalm verse 1, the wicked are described as chaff, which the wind blows away, as basically nothing. Nothingness versus something that's very weighty and strong, right? Or I think of it in New Testament terms, James 1.8 says that the man who lacks faith is unstable in all his ways, right? That's the contrast of those who do not trust God versus those who do trust in God. They have a firmness, a stability. They have a rock in who God is. Verse 3 says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? Whatever adverse circumstance David is, is facing right now, it's gotten him to his wit's end because he's comparing himself to a wall that's about to give in, that's about to be pushed over, and the enemy is constantly attacking him. It says they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So the enemy that's attacking him is being disingenuous. They're, they're pronouncing a blessing to him, but inwardly their heart is cursing him. See, that's a very subtle kind of attack. We don't want to be attacked like that because that's difficult to discern. We think we have friends. We think we have people who are building us up and lifting us up, but inwardly, they are plotting our destruction. That's what David is saying he, was, he is facing at this moment. I can think uh, there is a moment in David's life in 1 Samuel 15 where... I, sorry, I think it's in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 15, where David fled from Absalom when Absalom tried to take over the kingdom. And David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel, who is described as having the most trustworthy sayings. In fact, the, the, the actual quotation is that his words were so trustworthy, he, it was as if it was the word of God, right? That's, that's how both David and Ahithophel, or and Absalom uh, viewed him. But Ahithophel defected and became on, on Absalom's side in this great mutiny in the kingdom when Absalom tries to take over the kingdom, tries to remove David from his throne, Ahithophel goes over to Absalom's side and joins him. Maybe that's related to the struggle that David had in mind. I don't know if that's the case, but I, I, know, I do know that some commentators think David might have been reflecting on that experience when he wrote this psalm. Whatever the case, what he's saying is that the enemies that are attacking him are basically speaking out of the side of their mouth at him, right? They're, they're portraying a sense of wanting to help him, but they're actually seeking to hurt him. 
And it's not a perfect analogy, but I know in the modern day, we can think of examples where we've all experienced something like this. Um, Think about politicians, right? They are notorious for saying one thing in front of a crowd of people and making these great promises and making it sound like they want to help you, but then by their actions, they reveal that they actually have something different in mind. And it actually might be something that's contrary to your interests. The way that our, uh, our government works is that we elect leaders who are supposed to represent our interests. And so if they're going to get elected, they have to act like, yes, we will do what, what you would want us to do. And they'll say things like that. But then when they go and they do something different, well, that leaves us with a bitter feeling, right? And that can cause great turmoil and anxiety in our souls if we get too caught up in it, right? Um, even a little bit more, more close to home, sometimes friends and family can do things that betray our confidence. And that hurts. And that's okay to feel that. That is a a human emotion to feel the sting of betrayal. Uh, We think of the most common, or one of the most familiar examples of betrayal, the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas, one of the close disciples of Jesus, you know, he betrayed him with a kiss, right? That is something that can cause great distress to us when we experience attacks like this. But notice that the way David calms his soul is to say that God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. When our peace is threatened, we must realize that God alone is our rock and fortress, and thus in him we will not be greatly shaken. So our first point, our first thing that we can glean from this psalm is that we need to recognize that God alone is our hope and we need to put our trust in him. Secondly, entrust your whole being to God. Entrust your whole being to God. We'll see this in verses five to eight. Now, just as David in verse one gave us an indicative statement, God is my rock and my fortress, now he switches in verse five to an imperative he is giving a command. Specifically, he's commanding himself to do something. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. It's an interesting little thing because it's pretty much saying the same thing, but it's saying it a different way. He is, he is telling his soul, he's instructing his soul to remember that my hope is from him in verse 5. And he alone is my rock and my salvation. When we're pressed in life, when we face difficulties and challenges all around, it's okay to need a reminder of God's protection and provision. David needed to remind himself, right? He had to actually instruct himself. He had to coach his soul. I think there are times where we need to coach ourselves. You know, Hunter, you know, you're getting kind of worried about things. Remember, God's in control. Remember, God is sovereign, Right? I don't know if you like to talk to yourself. I probably talk to myself more than the average person. Um, hopefully that doesn't mean I have like schizophrenia or whatever that is. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a little weird like that. But no, David talks to himself, so it's good enough for me. All right. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. This, this tendency to need reminders is something that is, uh, that really plays along with our human nature. And I think really... It's actually very applicable to the modern man because I think there's a lot of ways in which uh, nowadays a lot of anxiety is caused by the fact that we think we're in control of everything or we think we ought to be in control of everything. Um, 
A great example of this, ju- just a little thing that you might not think about, is um, you know, the fact that we need a little reminder of where our package is when we order something off of Amazon. Right? Have you ever gotten that email? So, you, so first of all, it's one thing to be able to say, to wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to order a pair of socks today or batteries or I, I don't know. And then I'm going to order it. I'm going to go click online and in a couple clicks, it's going to be on its way and I'm going to get it in two days. That is pretty fantastic. But not only do we have to have two-day delivery, but we also have, that, have to have that email with the diagram that, that lays it out for us. It says, you ordered it right here, right? And today, it's right here at our storage facility, and tomorrow, it's going to be there, right? We have to have these reminders in our life that everything is going according to purpose, and it makes us feel like we have better control when we can see that someone has their eyes on it, and it makes us more confident, right? We, we have this sense that if, we're, if we have knowledge, if we have control, if we're arbiters of our own fate, then we can make sure that everything is going to happen just as we would like it to happen. But in some ways, I think that is giving us a false confidence. That's giving us an illusion that we have control over other things in our life. Sometimes we just need to be snapped out of it. Sometimes we need a reminder that we're not in control, but God is. That's what David needed. He needed to remind himself, and so he instructed himself, wait in silence, O oh my soul, for my hope is from him. I do believe that when David talks about salvation in this psalm, he has a very high theology. I, I do believe that he, he may have eternal salvation in mind in the, in the ultimate sense, but also deliverance from present enemies. And I think David's deliverance from present enemies pictures his ultimate salvation, okay? And part of that, I think, is you start to see it peel back in verse 7, when he says, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. This is an example of him giving to God what he cares about most, what is dear to him, what is precious to him. And those, that term, on God rests my salvation and my glory, is very interesting because I know that one thing that David meditated on a lot was God's promises to him. And I can think of a specific promise that I do believe may be in play here when he says that my glory actually rests on God. It's in God's hands. God is going to be the one to guarantee that this remains intact. And when we think of glory, you know, we think of it in a, in a vain sense sometimes, like, oh, we just want to be known, you know, Think about the famous athletes who put it all on the line on the court or on the field so that they can achieve glory and just be remembered forever. And that's, you know, there, there's a way that that ties in, but, but really I think what, what David is, is pointing to here is something that God promised him in 2 Samuel verse 7. And I'll turn there really fast just so we can understand 
2 Samuel verse 7, the Lord comes and makes a promise. This is something that uh, Bible students call the Davidic covenant. God says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've taken you from being a little shepherd boy and I've installed you as king over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And then listen to this. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So God actually promised to David, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually give you some glory. I'm going to give you a great name. And it's, it's fascinating. I've been to Israel. We have found artifacts, archaeological um, inscriptions of how great a king King David was. And these aren't even... Um, you know, this isn't even the Bible. This is an inscription that's found on a rock somewhere about the greatness of King David and his kingdom. That's something that the Lord promised he was going to do. There's a lot more to the Davidic covenant, though, than just that I'm going to make your name great. In fact, that statement to make your name great, that actually parallels something that was said to, to Abraham. I'm going to make you the father of kings. I'm going to bless you. So I do believe that David has God's entire program of salvation in mind. But one of the keys from the Davidic covenant, one of the keys from 2 Samuel 7, is that um, I will raise up uh, your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall be to build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is promising that there will be a forever kingdom on which a son of David will reign. Now, when we study the scriptures, it's fascinating to see this idea of divine sonship. When God says that he will be a son to me, each of the kings of Israel has an opportunity to supposedly be this son. Each of the kings of Israel fails. Even David himself failed to ultimately live up to what is promised here. But there is a promise nonetheless that a son of David will reign forever on the throne of David. And that's what's amazing when you open up the book of Matthew, because Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus and shows that he is a son of David. That's amazing. David We know that he was a prophet. We know that he spoke about the Messiah because Acts 2 tells us explicitly David prophesied about Jesus. I think David, in his very high theology, understands when he says things like, on God rests my salvation and my glory, I think he's taking God at his word. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank, right? Let's just call it rock bank, okay? And, uh, And know that it's, you know, anything that's put in there is insured by something that's greater than the FDIC. Stability in life, peace, and lack of anxiety come from entrusting our life and our future to God. When trouble arises in life, who do we turn to? I ask you that this morning. When the world stirs, do we first turn on the news? Or do we turn to God in prayer? I think we ought to. The news is meant to trouble you. God's word is meant to give you peace. David commands himself in verses 5, 6, and 7 to trust in God and to wait in silence. In verse 8, he commands us. 
He commands all people. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is telling us that we need to adopt the same attitude that David has. Confidence in God. Trust in his ability to deliver and protect us. And notice what he says. Pour out your heart before him. So on the one hand, you can have a very high confidence in God. And on the other, you can pour out your heart. You can pray. We need to pray. We need to express There are times in life where we need to express to God, things are not well. My soul is restless, Lord. Quiet my soul, you know. We need to coach ourselves. We need to ask the Lord for help with this. I think of um, many psalms that David wrote where he does this very thing. I'll just read you Psalm 28.1 that uses familiar terminology from this psalm that we're reading but in a different setting. He says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Throughout the book of Psalms, we have all the different emotions. We have laments. We have songs of confidence. We have songs of thanksgiving when God has provided great deliverance. What we're dealing with right now is a song of confidence. But we need these songs of confidence to remind us and to refresh us when we face the times where all we can do is lament. So the first thing that we do in order to glean insight from this psalm is we need to recognize that our only hope is in God. The second thing, entrust your whole being to God. And there's a third thing. Put no confidence in vain hopes. This is what we see in verse 9 and 10. Put no confidence in vain hopes. Verse 9 says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. And that's the ESV rendering. And I've wrestled with this, and I'm not a a perfect interpreter or anything like that. But uh, I do prefer, I think the Net Bible actually gets this a little bit better. Um, it probably, it's probably a small difference, but um, in, at least in the Hebrew, the way this is expressed is just a general term for mankind is used. So men are but a breath. And then another term that also describes mankind. Um, men are a delusion, right? I think we have it there. So men are nothing but a mere breath. Human beings are unreliable. Wow, what a statement. Human beings are unreliable. They're but a breath. Now contrast that with what we've been learning about God. God is substance. He is weighty. He is a rock, right? Human beings are nothing. They're lighter than a breath. So imagine if I could take some sort of bag and fill it up with air, tie it, seal it off. I have this bag of air, okay? And this represents humanity, man and his pomp, right? And I put it on the scale, right? So here it is. And then we put God on this side, and it just goes up, right? That's what it says here. In the balances, they go up. They are lighter than a breath. This this confidence that David is putting in God 
causes him to look at man and go, what is man? Man is nothing. Even our worst enemies are as nothing. I think of Jesus saying, do not fear those who can kill the body, right? But I will tell you the one who to fear, the one who, after the body's been killed, can cast into hell, right? God is the one who has power and authority. He is the only one that we should fear. He's the only one that we should trust as well. We should not put our trust in man to deliver us from our present circumstances. We should put our trust in God, I think we could all think of ways that we have stumbled and tripped and probably put our trust in man to deliver us from all sorts of trouble. Um, I mean, I'll tell you one way that, that, you know, sometimes I get caught up in politics and looking at what's going on and I look at what's going on in the country and go, oh man, I feel like people are just trampling the Constitution and do we even have a Constitution anymore? And I think, you know, am I putting my trust in the Constitution of the United States to protect me? and to deliver me from the sinister motives of wicked men? Or am I truly trusting in God that even if the protections that I've enjoyed, the freedom that I've had in America were to just get wiped away, that God still has a purpose for that and he has a plan and he's gonna protect me and he's gonna equip me to do what he wants me to do. That should be our trust. That should be the kind of confidence, the kind of hope that we have in God because God is our rock and our salvation. Look at verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He's listing the, the tactics, the playbook of wicked man. Ways that, that men seek to gain advantage in a fallen world, right? They will take advantage of others for their own gain. They will threaten people. They will use force to take what belongs to someone else. They'll rob, they'll steal, they'll cheat, they'll do all sorts of things. This might be in the the, the wicked pursuit of wealth. I think the fact that we can all think of how prevalent government corruption and corporate greed is in America shows that this is a true reality of life. Human beings are wicked and corrupt. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So in an ultimate sense, yeah, certainly, putting hope in riches, putting hope in, in anything besides God is, is certainly not wise. But um, even just in a temporal sense, You know, we may think that, oh, if I just make enough money, I'll be able to deliver myself from any situation. But truly, God has control over that as well, right? And those who may seem like they're in power and control, those who have gained uh, wealth by um, illicit means, shall we say, they may have a certain sense of the upper hand right now, but we trust and we know that God has all these things in mind, right? And how can we know, how can we be sure about that? Because God's character is on the line. And that's what we see at the close of this psalm. So this is, this is your fourth point. So your, your fourth point for how to uh, have peace and confidence in God in trying times is number four, rely on God's righteous character. Rely on God's righteous character. David closes this psalm 
in verses 11 and 12 with two truths that are critical for having a calm and fixed hope in God. I think it's sort of like, this is, this is the summary, right? Uh, these last four verses of the psalm are sort of like wisdom sayings, right? The first half of the psalm was, you know, expression of confidence, expression of who God is, instructing the soul to wait in God. And then these, these last two verses close with sort of a, a wisdom summation. And I hate to, I hate to be a, uh, you know, a Debbie Downer on the ESV here, but I do prefer the NIV because I, I, I've looked at this and I, I do think that it better captures exactly how David lays it out and it's beautiful, right? It says, one thing God has spoken Two things I have heard. Okay, what, what are the two things, David? Number one, power belongs to you, O God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. This is chesed in Hebrew. That is God's loyal love that is demonstrated throughout the Old Testament, a word that appears in very significant moments when God is demonstrating his ability to uh, deliver and save people and his gracious dealings with man- mankind. It's something that is extolled throughout the Psalms. God's chesed. That's the first thing. What's the second thing? You reward everyone according to what they have done. That's why I say rely on God's righteous character. Because on the one hand, we know that God is truly the one who has all the power. He has all the power and authority in the world. Uh, you know, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? That is, that is our victorious king. He has all authority. And what does he want us to do about that? Well, he says, go off into the world and be my disciples, right? So that's, that's our mission. That is our task. We trust that that's what God wants us to do. And we trust that if we obey that and if we do that, just as God says, that is going to work out for our good. That will definitely work out for our good. Why? Because with you, O Lord, is unfailing love. Right? A dictatorship could never work on our, as, as a way of governing our world because men are fallen, right? No matter how good someone feels in their heart, they're never going to be a good dictator. However, if God were the dictator, it could work out. Because with God is loyal love. He is the one who's able to orchestrate all things, who has perfect knowledge of everything, and even understands that what you're going through right now, from your perspective, might seem like it's really troubling and really hard, and you might wonder, where is God in this? But God has that in his hand, and he knows how to work it out for your glory, for your good, right? I think of Romans 8, that classic passage. He works together all things for the good of those who love him. And that passage is in context dealing with our salvation. These are some pretty significant truths that we need to rest on sometimes when there's nothing else to rest on. Power belongs to God and with him is unfailing love. And the second thing is that he rewards everyone according to to what they have done. We can trust that God is perfectly just. He is the definition of justice. Justice is based on does it agree with who God is and what he 
decides is right. He knows all men. He knows people's hearts. So think about that. When David says, you know, they bless with their mouths and they, in their hearts they curse, there's no way you could know that. There's no way you could know that people actually are saying one thing, but they mean another. I mean, you find out later. But God knows, right? And God brings justice. So that's something that we can rest on. We're, we're finite men and women. We don't, we don't understand. We don't have a full picture of what God's purposes and God's plan are. But we can trust and we can know. We can, with David, acknowledge that God is the one who has all authority and power. That his purposes are good. And that, in an ultimate sense, he will bring justice. Now, as I was wrestling with this and dealing with it, um, I, I was thinking through this. Th- this idea that God is, is perfectly just should terrify us a little bit <laughs> because we know that there are things in our own lives that are hidden, right? And we know that we're not perfect people. And we know that we'll face justice for things that we've done if God is truly just. But see, that's, that's where the gospel, that's where the love of Christ, that's where the cross becomes everything for us because the cross is where God's love and justice perfectly met. God struck Jesus on our behalf, right? That's what Isaiah 53 says. He was willing to crush the son. He punished him for our misdeeds. And according to Colossians 2.14, God has completely canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, having nailed it to the cross. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you don't have a terrifying fear of God's justice in the final day when everything is revealed, as Jesus says it will be. That's our hope, right? If you don't trust in Jesus, you'd be more in the category of those that David describes as enemies, enemies of God's plan, enemies of him, the ones who will one day face God's justice. These, these are definitely things that should sober us and cause us to be uh, reminded that we need to be urgent in our, our sense of needing to, to share the gospel with strangers, but... I also want us to take comfort today as, as Christians, as those who have given our lives to Christ. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, I, I welcome you. I, you know, I, I ask that you would pray privately in your heart to God. Talk to someone. Um, certainly um, take care of your, your standing before God. But listen to the encouragement from Jesus when he's describing to the disciples the hostility that they're going to face in the world. Listen to his description. This is Jesus in Matthew 10, 29 through 30. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care? And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is wanting us to realize that God understands he's in control of everything, even those little annoying birds outside your window. Maybe you don't think they're annoying. 
God knows when they fall to the ground, but you're more valuable than many sparrows. So what do we do when our world is out of order? What do we do when God's deliverance has not yet occurred in this life? Do we worry? Do we doubt? I think it's Psalms like this one, Psalm 62, that remind us that, if we, that we can boldly trust in God and experience a calm and tranquil soul when we recognize that God is our only hope, when we entrust our whole being to him, we put no confidence in vain hopes, and we rely on God's righteous character. Let's pray. Father God, it is such a privilege to be able to call you Father. Lord, we thank you that uh, if we have trusted in Christ, we have been adopted into your family, and we know that everything that is happening around us is working out for our good. Lord, show us how we can follow you. Show us how we can obey you. Help us to trust in you, to be those who are characterized by peace and confidence in who God is. Lord, help us not to focus too much on our circumstances and even the things that may trouble us as if those things are ultimate in life. Lord, help us to remember and trust that you are a good God who is in charge of everything in the universe, and yet you look on us with favor and you show us your loyal love. Lord, we praise you and we pray that you'd help us to trust in you in these days. Amen. You've been listening to Hunter Hayes, Assistant Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.